episode of today's lesson a nick cave podcast i'm andrew and i'm sean and today we're here to talk with you about the next two tracks off of uh from her to eternity well of misery and the titular track from her to eternity sean how are you today well well i'm doing very well (laughs) i would have to say uh not not a whole lot of misery here i've i've just had a long week off i'm relaxing on this dreary sunday afternoon listening to some cave earlier i cannot complain how are you doing andrew um more or less the same uh just enjoying this overcast portland day um i'm ready to talk about some crags and sunless cracks let's baby let's shimmy ourselves along those um this first song will of misery track three on the album is written by nick cave in its entirety um he's credited as far as i can tell with both lyrics and music how how are we introduced to this character sean yeah so we're introduced uh as we are with you know a couple characters on this album with with grunts and heaves and that that classic cave shrieking of of sorts but here it's, it's a little more restrained it's a little more focused and so we hear it, but we also hear a, a thudding, a, a digging noise, and that introduces us to this character who, you know, for all for all intents and purposes, has sequestered himself in a desert to to endlessly and ceaselessly push himself to the limit, digging this well of misery. Um, that's pretty grim. That's that's some dark stuff. But uh, Andrew, how do you feel about this song? Uh, it's grim, yes. Uh this though is one of my favorite songs on the album uh it's you know it's bluesy it's a little more standard than the songs preceding it um and definitely a couple after but uh it just it just really hits the spot i love his voice i love the lyrics uh it's pretty straightforward yeah it's it's one i revisit often off of this album yeah i gotta agree it's it's straightforward it's it's straight ahead it's blues it's you know, like you said, just one of the one of the more normal tracks on the album still has that that bad seeds weirdness in it. And uh, when I when I gave this album the first listen uh, ages ago, this was the one that really stuck with me throughout. And since then, you know, others have kind of jumped on my my top list for the album. But this still holds, I think, perhaps the top spot. We'll see. I'm still still up in the air. But uh, what a fan- it's a fantastic song. Yeah, so let's get into into the lyrics. We do kind of start out with some stage setting. Along crags and sunless cracks I go, up rib of rock, down spine of stone. Yeah, that rib of rock, spine of stone, obviously very evocative, you know, body imagery. 
possibly corpse imagery. Yeah, at the very least, desolation. You know, this isn't a isn't a place where people generally go. Yeah, bo- bone imagery instead of flesh. Exactly, exactly. Um, very evocative. For the longest time, I thought he was saying something completely different. This was a very mishearing lyrics moment. I thought he was saying something about spider stone, uh, which isn't the thing I learned <laughs> when I looked that up and uh, went and actually looked at the lyrics. But uh, ultimately... He's he's wandering into this desert, and we we then next see you know I dare not slumber where the night winds whistle, um, lest her creeping soul clutch this heart of thistle. Uh, more more madness lyrics, and this is where it starts kind of again keep revisiting this theme of obsession. Um, this man feels like an insomniac because he's being haunted by ghosts, and it's it's again very evocative very dark and it introduces us more to this character who is clearly very tormented and i think brings it beyond the the focus on what's actually happening and brings this more into a parable of sorts that is that is highly relatable i feel like yeah and this this that last line introduces the the her um the second character to go along with the speaker um her creeping soul and, and we'll just, you know, kind of experience the interplay between or the imagined interplay between these two characters as the song goes along. Yeah, because, again, on this track, and it is an imagined interplay, as it is with so many of these tracks where, you know, there's some some other female figure that the character is, is dwelling on, obsessing about, stalking, all sorts of things. Uh, there is no no real perspective. There's no, you know, who is she? It's It's whatever the speaker is telling us. Um, that's a great point songs before and after this kind of you know have that unreliable narrator thing where you have to kind of piece together the story that he's telling about this this other yeah and i think that this one's great because it is um not only musically straight ahead but story-wise it's pretty obvious what's happening it's a it's a very clear parable about you know becoming obsessed and, and digging a well and kind of holding yourself in a desert when you feel some sort of sorrow or despair um yeah or guilt or guilt and that's what it leaves ambiguous i think is is why this speaker is out there and we just know that there's some other object out there that that might be driving him to this point um in there which uh leads us into the next line and, and the discussion more on god and the role that you know the divine plays in the plight of man um oh the same god that abandoned her has in turn abandoned me we get a little bit more story here, but not a whole lot more definitive of actually what actually happened. And softening the turf with my tears, I dug a well of misery. Yeah, that's a sort of a recurring stanza. We'll get it a little bit different later on. But yeah, I I don't know that it's so much a meditation on, on God per se, but it's it's sort of his view on, you know, God, God abandoned her. She's, you know, obviously dead or... or you know that's what what the narrator has has talked about but that's sort of his view i think on she was abandoned she's dead and now i'm abandoned with my guilt we'll see who kind of is the the guilty party and at the end of this but um and and sort of make make our judgment uh, based on what he's told us but yeah I, I think i think it's just more he he's clearly under the weight of some kind of guilt and then him yep. invoking the divine you know, oh, the same God that abandoned her has abandoned me. It's sort of like him trying to take himself off the hook a little bit, I think. 
it, it does. It feels like deflection. It feels like projection. And um, it's, it's at this line that I start losing a whole lot of sympathy for this guy. Um, because when you kind of step back and, and see this as a parable, I can see myself in, in deserts and of, of uh, you know, out in the desert digging a well of misery. You can stay there for as long as you want. Uh, but this really is a deflection of something underlying, perhaps guilt, to say that it wasn't me that did it. Um, we were simply abandoned by God, by the, the, the divine being that could have saved us. Yeah. Which I think, I mean, Nick Cave is great at creating these <laughs> these characters that, you know, when character is the focus, you kind of want to feel for them. When they're in pain, you want to feel for somebody. Um, but I start losing a whole lot of sympathy for this guy right away. Yeah. Um. And in that well of misery hangs a bucket full of sorrow, uh, which swings slow and acting like a bell. Its toll is dead and hollow. Um, it feels more, it's kind of this. This feels more more songy, like more lyricy. Um, just setting setting more of the stage. Nothing too deep there. Just kind of describing this well that he's been building, um, and making it sort of corporeal, uh, tangible. Yeah, and you can't you can't really ignore the um, symbolism of the bell. You know, the bell is a call, and so you know when he's digging this up and he's he's dredging up this sorrow, uh, the sorrow itself is kind of still calling to him. It's something that you know he's obsessing on. It's again putting it outside of himself. It's taking away that that character's choice and saying, you know, I've done this. I was compelled to do it. I had to do it because I was abandoned. And now you know he's sitting there and he's hearing this bell toll, and it might be one of the things that's keeping him, you know, sitting there keeping him keeping him sequestered in this desert yeah and and i'm not sure i i feel like in the song they say slow and aching like a bell that's what i hear as well and but so the, it's odd to me that this is acting yeah this is the official nick cave lyrics and i feel like they're kind of wrong sometimes uh <laughs> but <laughs> i don't know if they know what they're talking about who are we to say but the biggest fans of nick cave alive uh I've listened to the song a number of times, and I might write him a letter. I won't, but I'll say I will. <laughs> he he hasn't. I'll, been I'll sign your name at the bottom. <laughs> Thank you. He doesn't respond to a lot of my letters, so. <laughs> God knows you've tried. Oh. I'm gonna try and sneak this one to the front of the line in the red hand files. Perfect. I think that this is the important conversation no one's having. <laughs> um, so down that well lies the long lost dress of my little floating girl he knows exactly where this embodiment of this girl my little floating girl so you know dead yep probably probably murdered by by him i think we can we can make an, a more informed guess in that respect being nick cave fans uh for some time often that is the case safe bet dead dead via murder yeah usually unfortunately uh a woman uh at the hand of a man the, the you know that could be this this recurring sort of thing can be read as you know misogynist and and taken in a pretty negative light and we do want to um acknowledge that while still being you know fans of the music fans of the lyrics uh, I, I think that's worth worth talking about um because it's there yep but yeah so we the the narrator knows exactly where this this dead girl is 
Um, the dress is sort of a stand-in for the body. Um, so he he knows what's happened. For all we know, it, it could have been an accident. But that's just not... It's just not how I read it. It's there's something it's too sinister. It's it's too written by Nick Cave. That's it. Everything about this is too sinister and it, it really evokes um Song of Joy off of Murder Ballads. It'll be a long time before we talk about that, but it's it's kind of the same case where there's enough that the narrator isn't saying and the the way that the narrator is saying what he is saying uh, does not garner a lot of sympathy. You don't really want to give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to, hey, what's going on here? Um, exactly. Simply because, like you said, there, there are a few other ways to read this. I do want to mention them because this could be, you know, just someone who is obsessed with something that they think shouldn't have happened. Yes. Um, which, you know, you blame God, you blame everything, and you you while yourself away um from the world and become hyper focused on some um arbitrary task and kind of just live in your sorrow um i'll say it's it's the recurring theme of x files fox Mulder looking for his sister um you know through no fault of his own he didn't he didn't murder her. it's nothing nefarious there it's just you know he, he blames a lot of other people for all the this pain and suffering and so i think that reading exists i think it's yes. there but like you were saying, in the larger context of Nick Cave, this sounds like a dude that killed whoever this is, a lover, you know, little girl, calls calls peers and lovers little girl all the time on this album. Um, I think it could be a child. Um, sure. But yeah, I think I think that there are there are many readings. I think there's one one clear winner in my mind as well. Yeah. And it's it's how much do you put into each song? textually and how much you put into it metatextually um yeah. but yeah i don't know totally valid all, all those readings are valid and and we just listened to economy sized amounts of nick cave over the years so we have our own sort of presuppositions but and i've also seen enough forensic files you know he knows where the dress <laughs> is come on that's right come on come on um, and I will say the first time I listened to this, I mean, you just get, I just got a bad vibe the first time I wasn't, you know, I didn't have all that meta meta context and I was just kind of listening to it and it's, it's not a great vibe. And that's one of the things that caught me. It's bad uh, vibes so. for sure. It's bad. Come on, dude. Bad vibes. It's an inference that she was his partner or, you know, maybe a daughter or something, but, but yeah, re read it as you will. Next uh we have the lines that muffles a tear that you let fall all down that well of misery yeah and i i think that this is perhaps the most interesting line and really gives a little bit of credence to other readings um might simply cement the place of the speaker as you know this narcissist blaming others for something that he's clearly done something something heinous but uh we, we are introduced to a third character here in, in my reading of this, in that that muffles a tear that you let fall. Uh, I don't believe speaks to either the speaker or in the context of this verse speaks to the girl down the well. And so... Interesting. I don't know who this is talking to. What, do you, do you, what are your thoughts? It, it almost is like he's speaking to the, the audience or a third person. And it, it, it's very bizarre that he doesn't say that muffles a tear that she let fall. Exactly. That yeah. said, yeah. I don't know how much 
that changes the reading um but yeah it's it's to me it's one of three things it's either god it's either the listener or it is uh a third party that he perhaps blames for the actual act itself but this was this was definitely probably the coolest line to think about because it does introduce just kind of an odd idiosyncrasy that probably just looking into a little bit too hard because i have too much time on my hands <laughs> no I, I think that's really good i mean it's it's so it does stand out yep it's no longer he's dug the well he's no longer softening the turf with his tears this dude's been crying for a while uh yeah but he's still weeping down that well and who who is to blame couldn't say well so when we move on to this next stanza i think we may have some kind of some kind of hint at that put your shoulder to the handle if you dare and hoist that bucket hither crank and hoist and hoist and crank till your muscles waste and wither well he's the one digging the well and dredging up these memories so i think what may be happening with that line is he is saying you know when he says that muffles a tear that you let fall it's the tear that he has let fall but he is sort of advising you on how to dredge up these memories or this guilt by informing you how to basically how to use the well. So it's almost like instructive. It's, it's almost like he is talking to the speaker and telling us, Hey, if you ever have to do this, this is how to do it. I let the tear fall. I built the well or used the well for this purpose. And I'm, I'm putting you in my shoes perhaps. Yeah, which which goes back to avalanche. It's the you know the yeah. transference. It's swapping the space. It's you know my pain. I've already been here. I've already built the well. I'm you know here's how you do it if you dare, and that that strikes me as a very cocky line. It's it's an interesting thing mm-hmm. that someone would see, you know the um, obsession with sorrow, the obsession with the past as almost a heroic thing to dare someone else into doing. You know if you're strong enough, come here and waste away. Uh, thinking about what it was you've done and, and the guilt. But I love that instructional angle. It absolutely is. It, it absolutely is, you know, that speaker um, telling others, hey, I've been here, and this is what you got to do if you're up to it. Yeah, and that, that's a great point, too, about if you dare. I think just those little things they slip in, uh, or Nick slips in, if you dare, that does make me less uh, <laughs> sure of the narrator. It makes me think he's not quite right or not not a great person it, it just yeah. kind of adds a little bit of attitude that is a little off-putting and you know not not that i'm thinking about it it almost strikes me that maybe he is talking to himself you know we've seen that kind of madness on this album already we'll see it again um when in, in times of sorrow it, it has almost felt to me like i've been you know m- multiple people speaking about different things and different viewpoints and this feels like you know, driven by guilt, perhaps there is a very angry part of him that that's forcing the rest of him to do this. You know, he's a blubbering mess. He's crying and he can't stop. But we don't hear any of that in this song. Yeah. The methodical, you know, mechanical, um, aggressive speaker is not weeping in this song and yet describing how he is. And so I think this could also be read as, you know, one side of him instructing the other to continue punishing himself for whatever it was that has happened absolutely yeah and we end end with the the lines uh oh the same god that abandoned her has in turn abandoned me some more woe is me um deep in the desert of despair 
you know, finally really placing us in this desert. You know, it's metaphorical, of course, but it, it still adds to the imagery. I wait at the well of misery. And what does he wait for? Yeah, what? Pizza. What do you think? He, what do you think he's waiting for? It seems as though there's no end. He's just sitting at a well in the middle of the desert. I mean, God's abandoned him, so he's not waiting for God. Is he waiting for death? Is he waiting for waiting for her to come back? Just keeping his eyes open so he doesn't fall asleep and get haunted, you know? Yeah, might just be waiting for that. Ambiguity abounds. Ambiguity abounds, but it does. It's also, I want to point out here, a Power Rangers reference, a very clever one. So <laughs> Desert of Despair, of course, is where the ninja temple resides and where the rangers have to go and find their ninja coins. Uh, and so it's it's interesting, this turn that he takes where we kind of finally place ourselves in the Power Rangers universe, uh, which I think really which gives a lot of context here. <laughs> what, what is this ninja coin shit about? Well, it's where the Power Rangers derive their, their ninja powers, and uh, it was, you know, a major storyline, I think, from the first movie. Uh, maybe the second movie, I can't remember, but the Rangers become their ninja forms, and it's very exciting stuff. It's very thrilling stuff. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm familiar and... with the first movie, and I think there's just, like, a big purple guy oozing, oh, oozing everybody. That's right. It was the ooze. What was his name? Edward? Ivan no. Ooze. Ivan I, I do believe. Oh. I fact check me on that, listeners, but Ivan Ooze, that's right. No, this is this is the second movie. Perhaps the third. I'm not super up on my lore, but at the same time, the Desert of Despair, I know is where the temple resides. Um, and I know that Nick was a huge Power Rangers fan. Yeah. And laid a lot of groundwork for the series and for mm. the mythology of the series. And so this is one great example, you know, long before that movie came out, him setting up the uh, the background for for the temple and that ultimate, you know, very exciting, thrilling storyline where the rangers themselves have to venture into this desert and, and find what they're looking for. Wow. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, music. Music. Makes the people... <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh, on to the music. Uh, as we talked about, it starts with retching, kind of synced up with, um, you know, these sort of lethargic, kind of slow, dirge-like snare hits, um, mirroring kind of the wandering nature of the speaker, mirroring the building of the well. But really, it's very sparse. Bass and snare. It sounds like maybe marimba at times pops in and out yeah and then that that harmonica that comes in later and just kind of soars is just so good yeah that that solo kills me every time um yeah absolutely when that comes in and just kind of takes you away that's i think what really cements it as a pretty straightforward blues tune but also elevates it to one of the best things on this album um and I do want to talk a little bit about the snare hits. Uh, this is a running theme now through the album. You know, three songs, I think, makes it a theme. The music is really representing what's going on around us. And so, you know, in Avalanche, we hear the avalanche come rolling down the rolling down the hill and the song starts. Cabin Fever, uh, I think the clicking um, the really reminds me of the rhythmic pounding of waves. It reminds me of the knots um, on a ship, you know, going by, mm -hmm. measuring speed. And this is, I think 
to me very clear that it's it's him digging the well it's a work tune it's you know he's he's just trying to crack that ground um softened as it is a little bit by his tears but the music really again takes us there and does a lot of work that um he doesn't do lyrically but doesn't need to because he's made this complete picture for us um yeah no that's a great point i mean the music and and lyrics especially on this album are really in tandem like they they the bad seeds really are are doing the extra work to to build this setting that nick has set up with his lyrics um no that's a great great point we're three for three on that on this album so far yeah um yeah it's 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 blues adjacent it's very standard but then you have um you know blix is making some interesting kind of noises I, i'm assuming it's Blixa uh, during the harmonica stuff it, it keeps it from sounding too normal which god forbid the song sounds too normal <laughs> at least not at this point you know i i dug a well you know his his voice really shines on this album this is the first song from the bad seeds where he's really singing it feels like yeah um compared with avalanche he's carrying a tune finally yeah exactly um the other members are singing and and kind of have this bluesy you know mirroring of his vocals oh my god didn't even meant the chorus i love the the greek chorus here responding the call and response <laughs> that that occurs between him and the band and so integral i feel like a moron how did i miss that but no that's that's a perfect thing to talk about in the in the music this call and response where it again i think through that use of um everyone singing you get different lyrics back and forth and if this really is the first time you i listened to it it's like this is obviously an echo you know he's in a desert there's there's crags and rocks everywhere and it's echoing um but the band often uses different phrasing than he does when he makes his call and they respond which i think is a really cool kind of kind of hint at madness hint at obsession all this stuff um yeah when you get that when they when they come back with something different than exactly what it was he said yeah exactly yeah it's it's very just that that perfect you know synthesis of of the music and lyrics just working to to elevate the material for sure no so that's uh well of misery um before we get to our next song today we've got a very special segment and we are back thank you for tuning in uh we are about to jump into the next song from her to eternity the titular track but before we do that we have something so special i'm so excited for this i am ready andrew are you ready i am dripping with excitement and i'm ready i am i am filled i am turgid with excitement i'm a well of excitement on this that's right and you don't have to drop a bucket down you can drink right off the top because i am fucking brimming (laughs) we are gonna take a ladle to this this is a segment that we like to call album cover review game andrew do you want to explain the rules a little bit i would love to um we are going to look at at all of these beautiful album covers that he's done and we're going to give them a rating now we'll be using a scale of of one to ten nick cave heads 
Um, you know, we thought we'd base the rating system on something that a great many of these album covers have in common. Um, so if you can, pull up a picture uh, or pull out your, your CD or your vinyl and uh, uh, take a look at this good album cover. Sean, what do you what do you think about this one? It's a beautiful cover. I love the lettering. That's the first thing that gets me. It's not his his gorgeous plenum right there, you know, bleached uh, in the in the light. It's it's really this lettering that speaks to me. Um, it's popping out from the middle. It's you know multi layered. It's not just a three D image, but again, you know the it seems to be blowing out from his forehead, and it's just such a great such a great cover for this album because it doesn't give away anything on the inside and some might say that that's stupid some might say hey the cover is supposed to communicate to you what is actually going to happen here um what this communicates to you is that it's a nick cave album called from her to eternity and this dude looks like he is thinking about something and oh i would have it no other way yeah, I I think it does kind of indicate a certain amount of of the album. I think the the letters are a little goofy, but but I love it. I love the font. I love that they're popping out at you, and just just his pale, fucking pallid face, just those sharp blue eyes. It just he he looks a little unhinged. I gotta say, um, he does. It's it's classic. To me, it is descriptive of the album, but only because you know. I've had a lot of familiarity with it and over the years you know it's just kind of i take it for granted but i do get what you're saying about yeah it doesn't really it's not a picture of a well you know it's not a picture of someone <laughs> breaking into someone's apartment as we'll we'll get into later but yeah i i think it is evocative of the style of music but not in any real tangible sense absolutely and and to me, the reason I say that it doesn't give away anything on the album, because I don't know how you would give away anything on this album on the cover. And so, you know, yeah. looking at it, it's it's fantastic. I think the black background does a lot of work here when it comes to actually understanding what's about to happen. Um, as ham-fisted as that might sound, when I look at this album cover, the the contrast of his face to that background <laughs> does kind of speak to the contents of what you're about to hear when you pop this in. Um and so the front cover is great. My personal favorite thing about this is you flip it over and right on the back, you know, the front says Nick Cave from Her to Eternity. And after a couple times looking at it, I was like, where are the bad seeds? This is the bad seeds album. You flip it over and there they are. And it has some of the best pictures you're going to find of this band um, looking all sorts of ways. And it, I love it to me that the, the back cover is actually better than the front. Uh you know, the pictures of everybody are almost intentionally bad. Exactly. Oh, it's so goofy. It's it's so funny. Um, they're all over the place. But yeah, intentionally, intentionally so. So oh. where do you land on this in terms of, of Nick Cave heads? <sighs> I, I'm going to say when we do this, I'm going to be pretty sparing with my heads. Um, they're very precious to me. And I'm not basing this on, you know, the American school system version of grading where, you know, C is passing. Uh, a 50% is right right in the middle, and it's relative to other covers. And so I have an idea of where things fall. This one, as great as it is, as much as I have to say about the back of it, fantastic. I'm going to say this, this probably lands at a 5.5. I love it, 
but it's right there in the middle as far as as Nick Cave album covers go. Yeah, that's fair. I'm 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 with you on that. I think my scale is just kind of different. Um going to be a little more generous with the amount of Nick Cave heads I give out. I'm going to go I'm going to go 7 out of 10 Nick Cave heads. I think it's it is right in the middle. Um like you said, I think the it has an edge to it that the album shares. But again, it doesn't really you know, you could almost take a few of the other early Nick Cave albums and just put them on this one and it would seem pretty pretty natural. Yeah, that that's an excellent point too. I think that this could be used for yeah, a couple of them. That's yeah. Well, I'm going to be pretty sparing with my Nick Cave heads. Um, yeah, that's that's the album cover review game. 5.5 5, Nick Cave heads for Sean, a little gruesome. Uh one of them has been cut in twain, slicing it straight down the middle. <laughs> and I'll give it Is that is that like five Nick Cave heads and one Mick Harvey head? Maybe. <laughs> is that how we're doing halfsies? I yeah, maybe. Maybe Warren Ellis. Yeah, I don't know. What are what are the relative head sizes of the band? Oh god. Can't believe they I don't write that too down. Many points. <laughs> Where is this? <laughs> um, seven from me. Sean, let's move on to From Her to Eternity. Let's do it. Let's uh, let's do it. What a segment, but uh, we have to move on to the titular track, Ready to Eternity. What a fantastic song we've got going on here. Um, I think that this slips back into what we were prepped for with Cabin Fever, back into that madness. Yeah. Um, almost right away. The intro noises are very strange. But uh, before we before we dive into the lyrics, Andrew, what are what are your general thoughts of this song as it falls into the context of the album? Well, obviously it's the it's the title track so you know there's there's some added import there um i think that this song which is so it's such a central song to nick cave's career it's definitely the i mean if you want to call a song a hit off this album i, I think this is the sort of the prime example of that um okay. i it's it's very good um I would have to say, though, that had it not been the title track or had it not really caught on and become a staple of his live shows, I would say that this one this one is not, you know, really close to being my favorite on this album. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you there. Um, it's so solid. And like you said, it's so important to his work as a whole for one reason or another. Um but when it comes down to to ranking things on the album, what I go back to and why I go back to it, it might simply be because I've heard this too much. It's it might be a victim of its own popularity, um, at least in in my head. But um, yeah, it's not it's not in itself a standout, which is very interesting. Yeah, this song was written by uh, Cave and uh, his partner at the time, Anita Lane. The music was written by All of the Bad Seeds, and. It's very similarly, you know, it has that similar edge to Cabin Fever as we've talked about, but it's it's almost a little more otherworldly. A lot of weird sounds. You know, Nick is all over the place with his vocals, and it has probably one of my favorite 
opening lines of any Nick Cave song, which is just, you know, I think it does kind of embody him. And uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, his, his, you know, women in his lyrics, but I want to tell you about a girl is just one of the great, you know, opening lines of, of any song. It's simple, has attitude. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah. It, it, it tears you in and it's understated, um, in a way that the subject matter is not. And I think it's, it's interesting because I think the speaker comes back to that in an understatement of what it is he himself is doing. Um, like you said, in the, in the context of the larger song, I just, God, can't think of a better way to introduce something like this, a story like this, than, hey, I just want to tell you about a girl, <laughs> you know? <laughs> she lives right above me. Um, I want to tell you about a girl. She lives in room 29. Why, that's the one right up top of mine. So, again, much like in at the beginning of Will of Misery, wastes no time kind of giving you the situation and the setting. This girl lives right above him. You know, they're neighbors in some context uh, in these apartments. Yes, on the topic of apartments, Andrew, didn't you used to live in number 29? Uh, you know, I did. We had a lot of fun with that. Um, <laughs> Constant source of enjoyment. <laughs> Constant source of amusement. But thankfully, you did not have any downstairs neighbors, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, we were in the basement of that one. We were the, we were the creeps. Creeps there. <laughs> Um, um, I start to cry. I start to cry. I hear her walking, walking barefoot across the floorboards all through this lonesome night. So the speaker is, is wrapped up sort of in this, you know, imagined and, and semi unimagined, uh, you know, view of this, this girl up there. He, he's crying, could be longing, could be loneliness, could just be madness, honestly, but he is listening very intently, very voyeuristic in nature. Um, somehow we can tell she's walking barefoot. You know, it's it's very emotional but perverse. Yeah, it seems at this point kind of a perverse sorrow, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lonesome night. He's listening <laughs> to her barefoot above him and, and just weeping for some reason. Um, and that gives us the next line. I hear her crying too. And the hot tears comes splashing on down, leaking through the cracks. You know, this place sounds kind of like a uh, a flop house of some sort, not the greatest apartment building. Yeah. But then we start delving into the real weirdness here, where the tears, they're coming down from the ceiling. Whether or not they're actually doing that is up for debate. But uh, down <laughs> on his face, and he's catching them in his mouth. Oh, I um, love it. <laughs> it's so oh, good. It's, it's gruesome. But any any moment in this song, I think, before this where I where I felt as though I didn't know what I was getting into. You, you do now. And this is just kind of a strange feral image of, of a man weeping, listening to his neighbor, and then attempting to guzzle down uh, the physical manifestation of his <laughs> neighbor's sorrow. Those good, good, um, yummy tears. Oh, mm, yummy. And, you know, it's, it's a twisted scene, him himself weeping while he does this. Um, and that launches straight into the chorus from her to eternity from her to eternity, which is, I think the album's clearest representation of pure obsession. Where, yeah, walk walk you know, and cry, walk and cry. He's in this cycle of, you know, she walks and cries, you know, maybe he walks and cries. Yep. He's following her around. He has to catch those tears. And, uh, 
Yeah, from her to eternity, I think it's it's a great turn of phrase, but you know, we we jump right into it and it's pretty clear to me that this means that this is everything that the speaker is and everything that the speaker obsesses on and and there is nothing beyond this obsession with the other that lives above him. Um, you know, after her there is nothing and uh yeah. begins the kind of nefarious uh, spiral in this song down to where we eventually end up uh, there. And so from her to eternity, we, we go from this scene of, you know, walking around, following her around, listening to her walk around and cry and, and guzzling down these tears to somehow he's in her apartment. And <laughs> this is where, you know, again, we're spiraling, we're spiraling pretty quickly here. Um, he reads her diary on her sheets and scrutinizes every little piece of dirt. And so he's flipping through a diary of some sort um, in her apartment, eventually tears out a page and stuffs it in his shirt and flees out the window, uh, shimmying down the vine out of her nightmare and back into mine. This is, to me, the core of the song. This is this is the meat verse where it really it really takes the grim turn. He is he is so obsessed that he's leaping into her window. He's stealing her stuff. He's he's obsessing over what it is she's you know documented, written down, and then you know, quickly dives into his. It also is interesting that, you know, taking this diary, he's scrutinizing not the words. You never get an actual image of what this person is or why he's obsessed with her in any way. But it, it focuses really on what's in his head. He's, he's scrutinizing little bits of the diary that have nothing to do with the diary itself or some kind of imagined information. Uh, before he steals it and runs away and that to me just paints a picture of very selfish obsession very you know obsession almost with an idea rather than a person um yeah he doesn't when it comes to eternity for him exactly he doesn't convey anything about this person's personality to us it's pure idolatry really now scrutinizing every little piece of dirt you could read that as like reading you know every little piece of of you know, info, you know, dirt being like this, you know, gossipy mm. kind of connotation. But yep. what you're saying is correct. Like he, wouldn't he be talking about that if he really cared? It's almost like, yeah, it's it's not about what's on the page. It's the, it's the skin cells on the page or on the sheets. Um, he steals a page. He doesn't care that this person knows that he's been in there. Uh, he doesn't care that He's yep. just taking it as like a, a token, like a fucking serial killer would. Yeah, it's a trophy at yeah. that point. Yes. Real bad and, uh, boy behavior. Very naughty man. Back in his nightmare, his nightmare is his apartment, because apartments are nightmares, as as you and I can attest to. <laughs> as we well know. As we well know. Um, back to the lines from Her to Eternity, cry, cry, cry. Um, the next stanza, she's wearing them, them blue stockings, I bet. You know, he's aware of, of probably some of her clothes for reasons that maybe he's left out. Um, you know, maybe other trophies or just, you know, he's gone rummaging. Standing like this with my ear to the ceiling. Listen, I know it must sound absurd, but I can hear the most melancholy sound I ever heard. He's peeping. He's he listening. He be peeping. And, uh... Listen, I know it must sound absurd. I love this plea to the audience. This kind of, you know, he knows that something's up. He knows that something he's doing isn't right. And 
he's almost there, but he's pleading to us saying, I know this is silly. I know this is absurd. And that word choice is funny to me because it's not absurd. It's, it's horrifying. It's, you know, it's, it's many steps beyond the absurd into um, something well beyond that. But it, it feels like the impact or the, um, the scale of what this person is doing is kind of lost on them when, you know, looking and trying to explain themselves to somebody else. Well, and, and yeah, he's prefacing, but I can hear the most melancholy sound I've ever heard with absurd. Like, yeah, that's absurd, dude. It's also so weird that you're thinking about this in that context, um, (laughs) and doing all of this. Um, yeah, it is. It's a very melancholy sound. If this girl's crying all the time, maybe it's because she has such a fucked up neighbor. Like, and the- maybe she's crying because her diary's been fucking stolen piece by piece. Well, and that's that's kind of how I end up reading this. Is like, there's there's no way that she's not aware that this yeah. dude is breaking in and stealing shit. Um, I I like to imagine when I'm listening to this that she actually sees him doing it, and you know when he jumps out the window, it's because she's actually there and he's feeling more clever than he actually is, um, and you know in his mind I think that he's he's almost trying to help that there's some you know you're so melancholy I'm trying to be there with you I understand um, you I took your diary page yeah like I I see you I know you um. It, but you know it's it's so twisted up in that that I love I love that reading that part of the reason that she's walking around crying all the time is because this dude is doing what he's doing yeah or other dudes or whatever maybe it's just been a pattern of you know people being really shitty to this person um but yeah I don't know I I, I really like that this song was written by Nick and Anita yeah yeah absolutely it's very it, uh like a fucked up relationship kind of story but the relationship is very very threadbare if there at all yeah if there at all outside of outside of the head of whoever this person is there's that guy in fucking apartment 39 always looks at me weird i bet it's that guy like, <laughs> there he is again <laughs> there's that guy i saw in my apartment yesterday <laughs> yeah um so wrapping it up oh tell me why 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 the ceiling still shakes why the fixtures turn to serpents snakes what do you make of these lines this 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 feels drugged out to me this this part of all the all of the album kind of feels like the most drug inspired i don't think it's a direct allusion to this person being you know high on heroin high on anything that would make him actually hallucinate but you know it's simply the madness that's um grasping him you know things around him are kind of turning into and and shuddering and shaking as so many depictions of intense drug addiction have you know shown us train spotting all this stuff where you just have this um this shuddering um requiem for a dream It, it seems to visually be communicated through this shaking um and then beyond that things turning into snakes or bugs or something like that that's that's kind of what i take out of this is this guy has done what he's done he's being overtaken by whatever madness is in his head and the world is just kind of vibrating around him in such a way that is you know turning shit into a real nightmare it's a, it's a waking nightmare well and as we know 
you know, Nick Cave and members of the Bad Seats have had no drug experience um, ever, especially well, not with hard drugs. <laughs> I hesitate because it's a straight edge band. And so <laughs> I don't know how they would have known about this. Yeah. But it's a great, <laughs> it's a great depiction for someone who's never engaged in something like that. Absolutely. Real imaginative on their part. Um, <laughs> this desire to possess her is a wound and it's nagging at me like a shrew. Uh, but I know that to possess her is therefore not to desire her. Kind of, this is where sort of the, the curtain falls down. Um, you know, the veil falls down. And, uh, you know, he basically says, like, it's not the desire to be with this person in any meaningful way. It's the desire to possess her. It's a wound that's just really, it's pulling at me like a shrew. That, that has some, uh, you know, gender kind of connotation to it a shrew you know nagging shrew like a nagging wife but i know that to possess her is therefore not to desire her so he is having this inner conflict well maybe i don't desire her what do i desire you know it's it's going in circles and really fits with those previous lines where everything's kind of going to hell yeah he's he's he knows he's aware enough to know or at least come to that conclusion here. And I think we see him kind of working through that himself. Yeah. We're privy to his own private conversation where he's actually having, he's discovering something new about himself here um, where he knows that, Hey, this is actually kind of the chase that I'm after. Like, I don't, I don't know this person. And if I were to kind of have her then I'd no longer have the real object of my obsession, which is the, the idea of having her and the, the steps I'm taking right now to, kind of get at her because all of a sudden I think he's somewhat aware that that would break the image that he has in his head of whatever it is that she actually is and that's um, a great point coming out of this weird you know almost druggy trippy imagery it's like it is a it is a clarity um yeah it's not cabin fever like that guy's never coming back like this guy at least realizes and is coming to terms with what he wants that's not necessarily a good thing if it's still going to lead him down this path you know <laughs> as we'll see uh but yeah very much not a good thing given where the the last lyrics take us um because you know because ooh, then you know that little girl would just have to go 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 from her to eternity and i don't see many ways around reading this as you know he'd have to dispose of her yeah. which uh yeah kind of i don't know you hear it it's another it's another bad vibes song you hear it throughout yeah, another you happy know what's ending going on. another happy four ending for, for nick cave um it almost makes me hope that he never stops doing this because it sounds like if he ever were to uh he would simply kill her which uh yikes oh no big that, yikes uh, Big yikes. Are we kind of on the same page there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's 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 where I kind of ended on the song. Guy finds perverse pleasure in, in the oddities without, you know, any kind of contact. Her existence is sexualized or, or sen sensualized in itself. Even though he relates to her sorrow, he can't really relate to it in a human way. He, he desires her, but that's not enough. He has to possess her. Uh, yikes. Big Yankees. 
big yikes yeah and that relating to the sorrow i i like that distinction because it all it is all the relating to the physical manifestations of the sorrow that he can hear and feel and see um but you know when he has the opportunity to kind of dig into why she's feeling that way he doesn't take it like he has he has her diary trophy but there's no interest in perhaps what's in the diary and you know why she's crying and then maybe making some effort to prevent or stop doing whatever it is that you know is making that so uh there's no interest there just none yeah so well this lady's attractive and i i like the idea of her in oh we're both sad uh we're both sad so what yeah what i just I, i get this image of like someone like looking at someone on a bus and just you know imagining all this stuff but not really giving a shit about who this person is then you get to that person and they're like uh this guy looking at me is making me super fucking uncomfortable (laughs) and i just want to fucking go home are you are you saying that we're both sad is not a good basis for a relationship by itself (laughs) oh no 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 of course it is it's just uh in this instant no yeah yeah yeah. I, i i yeah i love it and i love that two people that were partners wrote this song together that's just really fucked up but in a good way small yeah. yikes small yeah it is it's small yikes but i always fall back to you know it's it's a story it's a twisted story that this person yeah. is telling you know it's relatable there are there are things to take away from it perhaps it's a cautionary tale um yeah. but there is you know a distinction between between cave you know, saying this is how I feel and this is what I do and, and Cave simply telling us a story. And I think if you ever looked at, at Cave's work and, and thought that it was simply him saying, these are my opinions. Um, <laughs> That's a great I mean, impression. Thank you. <laughs> this is who I am. <laughs> um, he'd be a he'd be an irredeemable monster and yeah. we should discard <laughs> yes. him entirely. So, I mean, yeah, we're both fans of Cormac McCarthy to an extent as well. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, how could you? true. You, you gotta you gotta separate the author and the and the work at times and sometimes i think it's worth examining both together but yeah it's it's just yeah. awesome to have you know to to take this enjoyment in this sad piece of shit's uh adventures and like well i'm not like that <laughs> exactly it's but um... still enjoy the artistry of it yep yep it's uh very voyeuristic it's very it's we yeah we are we are voyeurs on this little scene that is itself voyeuristic it's yes, meta voyeuristic boom it is meta voyeuristic that's sean, what we're trying to get to here sean now that we've 100 percent completely solved that song let's talk about the music yeah no i think that that's a good place to move on to now that there is absolutely no discussion to be had about this song any further by anybody ever so yeah the music Look, we did it so it starts with that manic scratching guitar um probably blixa just you know using a guitar for nefarious purposes really <laughs> not using Things it a guitar was never intended. supposed to do yes exactly um yeah so so much going on you know throbbing piano bass uh drums building up the scratching floats around it like a little fly roaming around a little moth and nick's voice is kind of in the background until he kind of says you know right up top of mine it sort of emerges from this dark ambience yes 
and the the first line is almost the most sane sounding of the whole thing i just want to tell you about a girl i know after that it like you said it just pops forward and it becomes this this other force um very very nefarious force yeah and 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 even though it's kind of this pulsating rhythm and and there is a lot up front you know with the piano especially they take great care to play and experiment with with the space and the sound um you know something that they would do pretty damn well through at least the first half of their career yeah very much so i think that this listening to it and the first time i listened to it too it sounds again like having fever very claustrophobic mm-hmm. um and i get distinct imagery of just a shitty apartment building with this pounding piano and when when the room starts to shake and as soon as we're in this again the music is doing such a huge amount of work in painting the scene for us and making sure that we're we're right there in this nightmare and it just it creates it so whole piece in the way everyone's working together um it's insane it's it's absolutely insane and it's a it's a great song i know we were a little little down on it earlier in terms of you know how much we like it but it is a great song musically and lyrically um this might be sacrilegious of me to say and i'll probably say it again about some of the other songs as we go i definitely prefer the live seeds uh live album version of this song i'd have to agree with you there what is it that you like more about it um I like his vocal performance more. It's a little more unhinged. Um, there's more going on musically. Um, it's drenched in reverb, like that whole live album. It's just a, it's, it's, it's the version I just go to more often, um, as much as I respect the original. No, and I, like I said, I have to agree with you. Um, that whole Live Seeds album, I think we'll we'll get to it eventually, but um, just some stellar performances and. I'd be kind of hard pressed to imagine that, you know, Nick Cave would disagree with you on that point because each live performance that he does is another opportunity to reimagine, reinvent, you know, re re record ultimately um, all of his classic songs. And from our time seeing him, we know that that's the case. We've seen a lot of versions of a lot of stuff that never made it to the album, yep. but live are just so cool. And it's clear that the band wants to do that. It's clear that Cave wants to do that and put that out there. And I, I can't help but imagine that there are instances where he himself likes what he's done today more than what he did, you know, 20 some years ago. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's, you know, again, we'll get into the the live album, but the live album came out, you know, eight ish, nine ish years after this. So, so he probably had more time to kind of, you know, reinvent it and, and, you know, at the time probably really enjoyed that version, but this one's still classic and, and obviously, uh, a lot of people will probably disagree with that, but that's just kind of where where we stand on, uh, you know, at least at least the music and and performance of it. Yeah, and if you have any if you have anything to add or if you disagree, you know, we do want to hear from you. Um, you know, again, you can be rough with us. Uh, you can treat us like a a diary page, um, if you if you must. Um, You're sitting there scrutinizing all our words, tear us out, stuff us in your shirt, and uh, send us an email about what you what you think. Exactly. Um, what should they be listening to for next time, Sean? All right. So next time we're got kind of an odd episode here. What we're going to be listening to and, and talking about is uh, in the ghetto and the moon is in the gutter. Yeah. Um, these songs were not on the original release of the album, but appeared on the. Uh, 
CD release. In the Ghetto was an Elvis Presley tune. Might be might be a shorter episode, not as much to get into lyrically. We're not going to over overdo it. Um, but since they aren't on the original album, they're actually... Well, In the Ghetto is on Spotify. Um, but these might be songs we have to do a little digging to find. But they're good. Um, our ending theme is uh, under a Creative Commons license. It is called Clap Along by Jason Shaw. Uh, one of the conditions of using it is that we we must, in fact, give credit. Uh, it's got a great energy, and we did a little remix into it, um, which is allowed under the Commons license. So just wanted to give credit where credit is due. Um, how can they reach us or find us on yeah, abs- uh, the internet? Absolutely. So the internet, very powerful tool. We are present there. And again, if you have any differing opinions from ours, if you have any corrections to be made, if you have any input on the show, if you just want to kind of talk Nick Cave um, in a different setting, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter uh, at Today's Lesson Pod. You can find us on email, Today's Lesson Pod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Patreon. I want to throw us a few extra, few extra coins, uh, patreon.com slash today's lesson. And wherever you're listening to this on your podcast player, please be sure to rate and review five stars only five stars, one for each of the five Ninja Rangers, Power Ranger Ninjas. <laughs> That's right. Each Ninja coin turn it into a star and throw it up on our podcast to get the name out there. Uh, Until next time. We love Nick Cave. We do. We love him. What a guy. Do you want to try and do like a, we both say it at the same time? (laughs) Yes, let's do it. Until next time. We We love Nick Cave. And the bad, bad seeds. seeds. Bye. Bye.